All right, so good to see you today. Thank you for being here. And if we have not had a chance to meet, my name is Josh and I serve on the team. And Pastor Terrell and Shanda are not here today, so you're stuck with me. Uh, so sit down, buckle up, and enjoy the ride. It's going to be great. But uh, before we jump into the message, I want to do, the Bible says to give honor to whom honor is due. And so will you guys put your hands together and show some love and appreciation for Pastor Terrell and Shanda. We're thankful for their leadership and how they humbly serve this body. A couple uh, disclaimers before we jump into the message today. Number one, uh, my wife and I were originally from here, but we uh, moved back just two months ago from Dallas. And so I forgot that Tennessee weather is bipolar. And so going from 60 to 20 has got me messed up. So bear with me this morning. Uh, also, I do talk really, really, really fast. And so you're going to have to write fast and listen fast. So turn your ears on. It's going to be fun. But hey, we're going to jump in to the continuation of our series, Adam and Eve. Two weeks ago, uh, if you missed that, we challenged our men uh, and encouraged them to stand up, to man up. And last week, we challenged and encouraged our ladies to not believe the lies of the enemy. And today, we're going to talk a little bit about something that I think really applies to everybody in regards to our relationships, especially those relationships that are most close. And so whether you're married or engaged or dating, maybe some of your family or extended family, maybe it's your work family or your boss or other friends, I believe that this is going to be applicable to you. And so uh, we're going to take a deeper look at the story of Adam and Eve, and we're going to try to uncover some of the strategies that the enemy uses, I believe, not only in the story of Adam and Eve, but to this day in our lives to try to destroy relationships. So I'm going to say a word. And when I say this word, what I want you to do is the first person that comes to your mind, I want you to remember that maybe it's a, a name or a face, uh, maybe it's a distant memory or a, a recent conversation. I want you to hold on to that. And uh, we're going to come back around that at the end of service. And so if that person is sitting next to you, do not look at them, do not squeeze their hand or elbow them. You just look straight ahead and you keep on smiling. Okay. And you and I will know who it is, but uh, we're going to talk today about conflict and what happens when specifically when we have unresolved conflict in our lives, how that affects us, how that leaves us conflicted to where we are wrestling between our flesh and our spirit. And so Webster's Dictionary defines conflict as this. It says that it's a fight, a battle, or a war. Come on, how many would be honest and say that you've been in a fight or an argument so much so that it felt like it was on the battlefield or war zone? Come on, raise your hand, raise your hand all across. Uh, if you're not raising your hand, you just haven't been around long enough, keep breathing, you're going to get there. Your time is going to come where you're going to put the gloves on and have the knockout. Uh, it says another definition, it says it's a mental struggle resulting from incompatible or opposing needs, drives, wishes, external or internal demands. It's that tug of war relationally where you are arguing and fighting for your wishes, your demands, and it causes a mental struggle and conflict. It's a uh, third definition. It says it's the opposition or of persons or forces that gives rise to the dramatic action in a drama or a fiction. It's that movie. It's that thing, that tension where good versus evil, and it kind of keeps you engaged uh, as it kind of rises and falls throughout the movie. It's great if it's a movie. It's bad if that is how you live your life. And it reminds me of a, a recent quote that I heard that says the conflict is inevitable, but drama is a choice. But the reality is oftentimes we live like it's the opposite. The drama is inevitable in our lives and conflict is a choice. And when you think of the word conflict, it sometimes gets a bad rap. Uh, it kind of has a negative connotation uh, to it. But I want to tell you, conflict is not inherently bad. In fact, conflict is actually necessary for your spiritual growth. If you're taking notes, write this down. Conflict is the fire of life that both reveals 
and refines your character. I used to say it this way. I didn't know I was a lemon until I got squeezed and lemon juice came out, okay? Conflict has this way of taking things that are deep in the surface of your soul and bringing it up to the, to the top for you to deal with. And if you do deal with it correctly, it can refine you. And so today in this room, I believe when it comes to how we handle conflict, there are three types of people here today. And the first person I want to talk about is the conflict avoider. How many be honest to say you like to avoid conflict? You typically run from conflict. Raise your hand. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Keep... Okay. Some of you were conflicted and you didn't want to raise your hand. And so, but the, the conflict avoider are people, they avoid conflict at all costs, even to your detriment, right? If somebody offends you, if somebody hurts you, you're going to do everything you can to not confront them, not have a conversation and address it. You see them at the store and you'll beeline a different direction because you're not trying to have an interaction with that person. It's affectionately what I like to call peace fakers. And so you're going to fake the peace to their face. You're going to smile and act like everything's okay. And when they walk away, you're going to talk crazy to them in, in your heart, right? The peace fakers. The second person is a conflict aggressor. These people are kind of drawn to conflict. Raise your hand if that's you. You're kind of drawn to conflict. There's a few of you. Okay, some of you uh, did not raise your hand. You probably needed to. Uh, but let, let, me, let me help define it. It's somebody who's attracted to conflict. They love to argue. They love to kind of instigate things, poke the hornet's nest, so to speak. And where conflict avoiders walk away from a fight, conflict aggressors walk around looking for a fight. And they're the type of people that I would say, these are the peace takers. So they're going to come up into your space and they're going to snatch the peace right out from underneath you. And it's funny because my wife, Larissa, and I, we are on opposite ends of the spectrum when it comes to this. So my wife is the stereotypical conflict avoider. And so she tries to avoid conflict at all costs. She wants to please everyone, wants everyone to get along. Her idea of a good time, everybody's sitting around a campfire singing songs and just no issues, no conflict at all. And so me, on the other hand, I am the stereotypical conflict aggressor, which means I walk around like, I wish you would. I w- <laughs> You're nothing but a light snack and an appetizer, okay? You're like the chips and salsa at Los Amigos. We, just, we can dance right now. And uh, I'm an Enneagram wing, like eight, wing eight, like both wings are eight. So I am the a, the stereotypical, uh, you know, aggressor in that. And, you know, I was thinking when we first got married, uh, I have permission from her to, to share this story, but when we first got married, we loved each other. And, uh, you know, I saw her and I thought, God is good. You need to be with me for the rest of my life. And then we, we loved each other and felt good, but we didn't know how to communicate with one another. And so you have these two spectrums of people coming together, sharing uh, the world together. And what happens is that we would have these arguments and these things that would escalate and it would become intense. And inevitably it would uh, end up with Larissa running to the bathroom and shutting and locking the door with me chasing her, banging on the door, saying, open up this door. We're not done. We're going to finish it. And if I wasn't so cheap, I probably would have beat the door down, but it caused tension unnecessarily and conflict. And I remember uh, when, when you first get married and you've never lived with anybody else before, you start to, you know, share things and and I wasn't ready for some of the sacrifices I had to make. Well, one of those, we had a toothpaste tube and my wife would brush her teeth and then she would have the cap right next to the toothpaste tube. And I said, girl, you're literally on the one yard line. You just had to extend the ball over and we'd have scored. And I said, so it caused some issues. I said, don't be lazy, put the cap on, right? And then what happened is that uh, I said, I'm going to solve the problem and I'm going to go buy this, this technology. They make one with a cap attached to it. So you just got to go like that, right? 
And that didn't help. And so she would brush her teeth and leave. And then it eventually became like this science experiment. And there was a little tiny hole and it looked like, you know, blue spaghetti coming out. And she was okay with that because she could brush her teeth. But for me, it drove me crazy. And so we would fight and argue. And eventually I got to the point where I said, what is broken in me that would cause me to be so frustrated and upset over something that really in the grand scheme of life is insignificant? And I heard this quote by a guy named Paul Washer. He said that your spouse's weaknesses are divinely orchestrated to shape and to mold you into the image of Christ. And so I began to see things through a different light and realized that my desire for closure, for control, actually perpetuated the conflict. And so over the years, we've grown, we've learned to balance each other out, and we're becoming the third type of person, which is this. It's a conflict resolver, or what Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 9, uh, a peacemaker. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. He did not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. Some of us run around trying to keep peace, and we're think, we think that we're doing what God said to do, and Jesus said that we should be peacemakers. And so these are people who actually embrace conflict as a means to peace. And I love what, uh, how that verse reads in the New Living Translation. It says, God blesses those who work for peace. How many by show of hands say you want peace in your relationships? Raise your hand. Come on. If you want peace in that relationship, it's going to take work. Because peace does not come when conflict is absent relationally. Peace comes when conflict is addressed biblically. So in order to know how to bring some resolution to some of these conflicts in our lives, we've got to go back to the original source of conflict. And no, it is not your husband or your wife or your kids or your in-laws. Well, maybe for some of y'all, my in-laws are cool. But like, it, it's not them. It's not anybody that's in your life. There's one source And it's John 10, verse 10, where it says that the enemy comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And so we've got to understand that that same strategy that he used in Adam and Eve's life is the same one that he uses today. So what we're going to do, I'm going to give you an overview of what happened in Genesis 2. Then we're going to dig in to Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis chapter 2, God uh, forms Adam from the dust, and then he breathes spirit life in him. And then he goes ahead and he creates a garden. And in this garden, he creates, the Bible says, uh, trees of every kind, beautiful trees with fruit on there that is delicious. And then it says he, place, he places Adam in the middle of the garden. And in the middle of the garden, he creates the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when he does that, he says, hey, you can freely eat of every single tree in the garden except this one, just one. And he said, in the moment that you do that, you will surely die. Now, it's important to, to note that God was telling that to Adam at the time. Eve was not yet created. Because we're going to see later in the story how Adam tried to blame Eve. But Adam was the one who received that directive. So go with me to Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. For God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Side note, he did not say you couldn't touch it. He said just don't eat it. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So when I hear this, there's all these sort of alarms that start going off in my mind, and it's like a, like a check engine light, like a, uh, don't pass go because you're not about to collect $200. Like I want to just scream out, Adam, Eve, it's a, it's a setup. Don't do it. 
I don't know if you've uh, been watching maybe one of your favorite movies, a, sp- a suspenseful movie or whatever, and there's that moment where the main character is like coming into contact with imminent danger, and the camera zooms out, and you see what's about to happen, and like you want to reach to the screen and just say, don't do it. That, that's what I feel in this moment, because E, first of all, I'm like, homegirl, why are you talking to a snake? Like, if, if a dog, if my dog starts talking to me, I got to go. I love my dog, but one of us has got to go. We're not going to play that. But second of all, you see in this moment his intention, his motive is revealed. He's not asking a question looking for clarity. He's actually questioning God and sowing seeds of doubt. So we see the first strategy that the enemy uses to cause conflict in our lives is doubt. The enemy was trying to get Eve to doubt and question both God's command and his character his word, and his goodness. His command said, don't do this. But his character, his reasoning why, was if you do this, it's going to hurt you. It's going to cost you. If you do this, you will surely die. And what the enemy is trying to convince Eve is that God's withholding something better from her, that Satan is trying to get Eve to doubt God's command because it's easier to disobey a God that you doubt or you don't believe in. That's why we have atheists and and agnostic people because they don't have to give an account to a God that they don't believe in. So they can live their life guilt-free in that. But the reality is that all of us will give an account. So how does doubt affect your relationship with God and with others? Well, in your relationship with God, doubt will start to sabotage your faith. And when you start to lose faith, what happens is you stop trusting in God. You see, faith says that I believe God can provide, but trust says I believe that he's the provider, even if I don't see the provision. Faith says that I believe God can heal, but trust says I believe he's the healer, even if I never receive the healing that I'm praying and believing for. Faith says that I believe that God is good because I've seen his goodness in my life. I've tasted and seen. But trust says that I believe God is good even if my circumstances are not good. Even if he never does another thing for me, he is good. That's who he is. It's not just what he does. And so Hebrews 11.1 1 encourages us and says that faith is not just a belief, but it says it's the substance of things that are hoped for with the evidence of things that are unseen. But trust is faith in action. And so doubt doesn't just affect your relationship and my relationship with God. It also affects our relationship with others. And so when you think of those most close relationships in your life, to the degree the doubt is present, trust is absent. If you have doubts about them and their intent and motives, then you cannot have trust with them. And without trust, there can't be vulnerability. Without vulnerability, there can't be intimacy. Without intimacy, you can't be fully known. Without being fully known, you can't be truly loved. And without being truly loved, you are never able to freely trust. And so what happens when somebody does you wrong, that trust cycle is broken. And then all of a sudden, we start building up these walls relationally. And it may not have anything to do with the people that you come in contact going forward. It just be, it's an offense. It's It's literally a fence. You start building an emotional, spiritual fence that is meant to keep other people out because you don't want to get hurt. It's a mode of protection. But what happens is that you actually put yourself on lockdown. You imprison yourself. You isolate yourself. And you're full of emptiness, void of any meaningful relationships. Psalm 9 verse 10 says, Those who know your name trust in you. For you, O Lord, do not abandon those who search for you. Come on, we don't trust people that we don't know. And so if you only trust someone that you know, how do you get to know them better? 
Or you've got to spend time with them. You've got to learn to communicate, get to know their heart. And there's an old friend of mine, a guy named Aubrey McGowan, that uh, wrote a book years ago called Mastering the Art of Trust. And he talks about this trust cycle. And he says, communication is the currency that's invested in the relational equity account in people's lives. And what's withdrawn from that is trust. And trust actually produces better communication. And the cycle goes on. And you have healthy relationships. And so if you're here and you're having a hard time trusting God, I want to ask you, are you spending time getting to know him? Like, how's your time in the word? How's your time spending praying and seeking after the Lord? 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says that we should pray without ceasing to never stop praying. Are you investing in your relationship with the Lord? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says that we should trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do. And then he will show you which path to take. Another translation says he will direct your steps, your path. And so in every relationship, every decision you have in life, you've got to learn to trust the Lord and seek his will. So the strategy number one is doubt. The solution is to fully trust God. To completely, heart abandonedly, fully trust God. So strategy number two that the enemy will use to cause conflict in our life is deception. Now, remember in Genesis chapter 2, God told Adam to not eat of the fruit. He did not have that conversation with Eve. And so I just got this question, why is this dude, why is Satan going around Adam's back trying to talk to his woman? I wish he would. Well, right? God tells Adam, Adam tells Eve, then Satan comes between Adam and Eve and tries to separate them and he does that through deception. And I want to warn somebody today that you need to guard your heart. Because this is not, you may not realize this, but you are in a battle, in a conflict. And the Bible says that the enemy goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So he does not play fair and he wants to utterly destroy your life. But you don't have to just guard your heart. You have to guard your home. Because if he can't get to you, don't think for a moment he won't try to get to your spouse to get to you. And if he can't get to your spouse, he'll try to get to your kids to get to you. It's the same strategy he's used for all eternity. That's why he tries to get at us to get at God with retribution because he can't touch and phase God. So we got to heart, guard our heart and guard our home. Genesis 3 verse 1. I'm going to read it with a different emphasis. It said, did God really say that you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Like, I don't know if you caught that deception in the, the subtlety. Remember, God said that they could eat of every tree of the garden except for one. And so now what Satan is trying to do is take her eyes off of every other blessing that God has given and to focus on the one thing that they don't have. And it's the same strategy that he does today. Then he goes on in, in verse 4 and he says, you won't die. Like, that's a, a blatant lie for all my people under 20. Straight cap, okay? Like, like, he's lying right now. God literally said, if you do this, you are sure to die. And I don't know if you've ever believed a lie like that. Maybe you've had a friend that said, hey, come do this thing. They wanted you to do something that you knew in your heart of hearts that it was wrong. And maybe they said something like, well, it's not that bad, right? No one's going to get hurt. No one's going to know. We won't get caught. And maybe... You've tried to convince yourself to believe that lie. That is the power of deception. But the problem is that when you give the enemy an inch, he doesn't take a mile. He takes over in your life and in my life. Verse 5, Satan goes on and says that God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it. And you will be like God, knowing both 
good and evil. So notice what he did. Initially, a subtle deceptive lie, then a blatant lie, and now he's trying to deceive her with good things. And I want to tell you today that Satan does not only tempt you with bad things, he often tempts you with good things that are not God things. And so when you have good things that are not submitted to God, they can become bad things. Likewise, when you have some bad situations and bad things in your life, if you submit it to God, then it can become a good thing. I'll give you an analogy with fire. Is fire in your house? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Talk to me. Everyone, mostly everyone said bad. Well, uh, with this weather, I want some fire on my fireplace, right, to keep me warm. Fire that is contained in a fireplace is good. Fire that's on your roof, that's a bad deal, right? How many, uh, anybody grill? Let me see, raise your hand if you're a griller. All right, one of y'all invite me over next week and cook for me, right? Uh, I may be an amateur, right, but I don't know if you've ever done that, went and put meat on the grill, and you go back inside and like two minutes later, you come out and the whole thing's on fire because uh, you didn't clean the grease trap, right? That, that's me. Fire that's not contained is a bad thing. In the same way, Satan can use deception. It can manifest in good things, also in blatant lies and white lies and half-truths, which, by the way, are whole lies. And so, speaking of lies, how many would be honest to say that you've ever lied? Raise your hand. If you didn't raise your hand, you're a liar. Uh, that's your first lie. Listen to what it said. Uh, studies from the University of Massachusetts and the University of Michigan show this, that people lie on average one to two times a day. And that's not really including some of the white lies or the half-truths. And it says that lying increases with age with the highest frequency being observed in older adults. Don't look around. If you see an older adult, they just got really good at lying, okay? Pray for them. Cross-cultural studies show that lying can be influenced by cultural norms and social conditioning with different societies exhibiting varying degrees of acceptance towards deception. In other words, deception can permeate your culture. And that is, could be a community. It could be your culture at work. But if we're not careful, it starts to permeate the church and those who call themselves Christ followers. And so how does deception affect your relationship with God and with others? Look at what Jesus said of himself in John chapter 14, verse 6. He says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. So Jesus not only says that he tells the truth and he walks the truth, but it's, he, he says that he is the very essence of truth. And then what he says of Satan in John uh, chapter 8, verse 44, he says that Satan has always hated the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, it is consistent with his character, for he is a liar and the father of all lies. And so what Jesus is saying to us through his word is you can't walk both in truth and in deception. Deception withholds truth. It suppresses truth, but God's truth reveals and exposes deception. Deception will numb and desensitize your soul. It will hinder your ability to hear the voice of God. It will blind you spiritually and make you think that people around you or different personality types are the problem instead of what the Bible says are principalities of darkness. Check out what it says in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. It says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. If it's a person that you think is the problem in your life, that's not the problem. It says, we're fighting against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So I want to tell you today that every conflict that you have relationally is actually a conflict spiritually. And there's some tools that he uses. One of those, it's a, it's a subtle tool, but it's the tool of assumption, right? And you, I won't say this from the platform, but you and I both know what assuming does. Okay, you can fill in the gaps with that. 
But what happens is when you've been done wrong by somebody and you may get out of that circumstance or situation and then you encounter somebody else and it triggers something that's unhealed, that's still broken in your life from over there, what happens is you start to assume their motive was the same motive of the person that had hurt you initially. And so you start building up those walls and, and, and you limit the relational interaction because of that. And I want to encourage you today, you can acknowledge the action, but don't assume people's motives in that. Ask clarifying questions and assume the best and then give grace for the rest. Another tool he uses is gossip. The thing with gossip, a lot of times, especially in, in church culture, like we, uh, we often say this of, hey, you need to pray for so-and-so because, you know, they got this thing going on, whatever it is. And really, we're just trying to spread the gossip. We're just trying to tell people what's going on. I ain't looking at anybody, but you know who you are, right? And what happens when we gossip, we perpetuate and fuel the spiritual accusations against other people who are made in the image of God. One of the names of Satan is the accuser of the brethren. So when we are talking to somebody about a problem where we're not a part of the problem or part of the solution, we are continuing those accusations, sowing discord and causing destruction in our relationships. And so the way that we combat this second strategy of deception is to make sure that we are walking in, speaking in, living in, being completely full of truth. And so we see the strategy number three that the enemy uses to cause conflict, and it is distraction. The reality is uh, we live in a world that is full of distractions. We're constantly bombarded with uh, text messages and notifications, comments, signs, advertisements, likes, and all of these things that are fighting for our affection, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, but in 2021, uh, I don't know if you knew this, but distracted driving actually contributed to over 360,000 injuries, over 3,500 fatalities, and made up uh, 13% of all motor vehicle crashes that were reported to the police. It's not paying attention, taking your eyes off the road. I won't make you raise your hand how many texts and drive, but you don't do it, right? I'm telling myself. And so what happens when we are spiritually distracted, it's even more dangerous and so the word distraction actually comes from a combination of the prefix dis, which means un or opposite, and the word traction, which simply means grip, or it means uh, a movement, power provided for movement, the action of drawing or pulling something. And so essentially, traction is faith that mobilizes you towards God, and it is distraction that is a fear or your flesh that paralyzes you, keeping you from God. And I want to ask you today, do you have spiritual traction in your life, or are you spiritually distracted? Where is your focus? If you would honest, be honest with yourself, or maybe Put yourself in that moment, as I've been several times with people in their last moments when they're at their deathbed, and they begin to question, what was most important in my life? If you were in that moment, what would people say was most important in your life? You can often tell what's most important to someone by looking at where they spend their time and their talent and their treasure. There was a study done by Pew Research that showed this. 68% of professing Christians say that their religion is very important to them. But on the contrast, only 47% attend church weekly. And 36% attend once a month or a few times a year. And 17% said that they seldom or never attend. And so you've got 68% saying that, they, that this is important, but a significantly less portion actually showing that it's important to them. Only 45% of Christians read their Bible at least once weekly. And 33% said that they seldom or they never do. Only 32% of Christians participate in a Bible study or a connection group 
once a week. And 47% said that they seldom or never do. And that's why we're kicking out. You see the tables out in the foyer area. We are uh, launching our new connection group semester. And it's a great time for you to get connected in relationship, in community with other like-minded Christ followers that will help you to keep from being distracted. Because all the enemy has to do to defeat you and me is to distract us from what's most important. And the reality is whatever has your attention will eventually have your affection. I'll say it another way. Whatever catches your eyes will capture your heart. Look at verse 6, Genesis 3. It says, The woman was convinced, and she saw that the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted to give, though she wanted to get the wisdom that it would give her. So she took some of the fruit, and she ate it. And then she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and slacking, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to make some draws and to cover themselves. Okay, that's the, the New Hood version, okay? Three things that Satan did. He, number one, he tempted her with this distraction that she saw that the tree was beautiful, its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. And the reason why I want to point that out is there's a parallel verse, Genesis at the beginning of the Bible, in 1 John chapter 2, towards the end of the Bible. It says this in verse 15. Do not love this world, nor the things that it offers. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. Its fruit looked delicious. A craving for everything that we see. She saw that the tree was beautiful. And the pride in our achievements and possessions that she wanted wisdom. These are not from the Father, but they are from this world. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. So anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. And so we see the same strategies to try to distract us spiritually. But it's not just spiritually. Um, if we're not careful, we can be distracted relationally too. And I remember a few years ago, one of my older kids, uh, they would uh, sit down. They were probably three or four years old and we were having a conversation, which is, you know, them rambling and, and you know, not being able to communicate very well. But I remember it was so important to them. They said, daddy, listen to me. And I was like, I'm listening and, you know, on my phone or whatever. And they literally grabbed my face and turned it towards them. And they said, no, daddy, listen. And what they're saying was, look at me, pay attention to me. And they were only like four years old. And I want to tell you, when we're distracted relationally, we lose focus and intentionality. And as a result, what happens is we begin neglecting the most important relationships that are in our lives. It creates a breeding ground for contempt and for conflict, especially in your home. And when we're distracted, the most important relationships often become the least invested, starting with your relationship with God. You get so busy doing things. And even listen, for us, uh, for those that are committed Christians that are here, maybe you're serving, you can be guilty of doing things for God without God. We've got to remind ourselves of what the main thing is because distraction will sabotage your relationships. It'll help you or make you take your eyes off of the creator of all things and put them on all the things that he's created. It, what happens when we're distracted, we'll begin to focus on the temporal things over the eternal. We'll become nearsighted and begin to make decisions that are based on, listen, immediate temporal satisfaction instead of lasting, delayed, but eternal rewards. So I want to tell you, every action, every decision in your life, every action will either lead to traction towards God or distraction pulling you away from God. So the way that we combat and fight against this strategy of the enemy is to focus on eternity. 
Ask yourself this question. In every temptation, every struggle you have, every relational conflict where there's, you got beef with somebody that's unresolved, ask yourself this question. In light of eternity, does this matter? If it's something that's going to be temporarily satisfying you, have your eyes focused on eternal. Realize that that is just a distraction. If you've got some sort of relational conflict, realize that in that moment, holding that grudge, holding on to that unforgiveness in light of eternity does not matter. Release it. Forgive them. Look what it says in Genesis 3 verse 8, talking through the fourth strategy of the enemy, which is division. It says this starting in verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? And the man replied very stupidly, it was that woman you gave me. All right, let me help you out, dudes. Don't, don't do that. Don't blame the woman, okay? It was that woman, she gave it to me, and I ate it. And then the Lord, asked, uh, Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? And the serpent deceived me. She replied, that's why I ate it. So we see the end game of the enemy is to ultimately cause this sort of division. It's separation. It leads to death. And so Adam used to hear God's voice, and he would run to him. And now Adam hears God's voice and instead he's running from him and he's hiding out of fear and shame. And then God comes up to Adam and he, he says, Adam, where are you? And it wasn't because he didn't know where Adam was at. It was because the intimacy of their relationship was broken. It's almost like they had this meetup, hey, four o'clock every single day, we're going to meet up. And Adam ghosted him, no call, no show. And he's like, where are you at? And I believe that there are maybe some of you here today where God is asking you, where are you? Maybe he's saying, where have you been, been waiting for you? And maybe there was a time in your life where you felt closer to God than you are right now. And I just want to tell you, if that's you, listen, he's not angry at you. It's not hellfire and brimstone, but his heart is for you. He's still there. And all you have to do is turn away from the doubt and the deception and the distraction and turn. And he's there with open arms of love and with grace. You don't have to hide you don't have to let fear and shame keep you down. And so what happened as what started as a seed of doubt, it gave root to deception and deception led to distraction and distraction inevitably caused division. And so I want to kind of summarize the remaining verses in Genesis chapter 3 just for time's sake. But verse 15 says that God, as a result of this, this disobedience, says that God will cause hostility between Satan and woman and all of their descendants Verse 16 says, the consequences for women is that you're going to have pain in your pregnancy. Ladies, you can thank Eve for taking a bite. Okay. And then it says this, listen to this, that she would desire control over her husband, but her husband will rule over her. And how many know, what is that talking about? Relational conflict where God's design for marriage was to be symbolic of his covenant with us, that we were to fight for the bottom, to serve, to love, to honor, to abandon ourselves. And here we are in our culture, in our society, where we are fighting for the top. We're fighting for control. We're fighting for these things that God never intended for us. Verse 17 and on talks about the consequences for man. It says that the ground is going to be cursed. It says, all your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. And by the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. So I want to tell you today that conflict that is not dealt with biblically will lead to struggle 
And struggle will lead to sin. And sin will lead to shame. And shame will lead to separation. And I want to tell you, if the enemy can divide you, he can destroy you. If he can isolate you. It's what the, you watch National Geographic and the lion going around. He never attacks the one that's in the center. He always attacks the one that's straggling, the weak one, the young one, the one that is isolated. And if he can isolate you, if he can divide you, he can destroy you. And that's especially true um, in our marriages He's working overtime trying to cause conflict and division. There's a study done by Ohio State University that concluded that 16% of couples have little conflict in their relationship. 60% of couples have moderate levels of conflict. And 22% of couples say that they have high levels of conflict. And the reason why that's important, it's not just numbers, but there was another study done with Ohio State University in conjunction with Florida State that says this. I'm going to quote it. It says, The tendency for one or both spouses to avoid or withdraw from tough conversations could set up married couples for emotional distress, bad feelings about their relationship, listen, chronic inflammation, and lowered immune function. So when you are divided, you're avoiding conflict, you're not having the difficult conversations, you're not only going to be stressed out in your relationships, especially your marriage, okay? You're not only going to not like each other, and it's going to be better to be death do you part for some of y'all, but you're going to have literally, you're going to have chronic inflammation in your body, due to a lowered immune system. He's literally trying to destroy us from the inside out. And what we have to do is make sure we're fighting the right fight. We've got to fight for unity in order to defeat the strategy of division. Philippians chapter two, verse one and four says this, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate that make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another and working together with one mind and purpose? Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Instead, be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. And don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in other people too. I want to go back to one of the things that I said earlier at the beginning of the message, that peace does not come when conflict is absent relationally. It comes when conflict is addressed biblically. Some of you who are conflict avoiders, uh, you think that because you don't apparently have conflict in your life that you have peace. But maybe it's because you've walked away from every conflicted situation, everything that would cause conflict, that you think that you have peace, but you just have an absence of that right there. But you've never dealt with the root and the seed, which at some point in your life will manifest. Maybe some of you are on the other side of that. You're the the conflict aggressors. and, And maybe you've pushed people away as a defense mechanism. And you've caused this gap. And you think that, well, I don't have any. It's everyone else's problem. But you don't have peace. And so I want to talk to those people, starting with the peace fakers the conflict avoiders. I know that some of you, maybe you grew up in a home and you never saw how to handle conflict in a godly way. And maybe you saw parents that just never talked about it. They fought and they went away and they never brought resolution. You were stuck in the middle of that. Maybe some of you have been hurt as a child or even as a young adult and and you've carried some wounds with you for a long time. Some of you for decades. And what had happened was in that moment, somebody had done you wrong and you thought the best way that you can get back at them is to hold on to unforgiveness and bitterness and resentment. And what that does, that's like setting yourself, setting somebody else on fire and light them on fire and then you die from uh, smoke inhalation. It does no good. And so if that's you in that moment, can I encourage you, if you've been hurt before, number one, I'm sorry. People are going people, but God will never leave you. And he's a father to those. And listen to what it says 
In Psalm 103, verse 6, it says, For those type of people, the Lord gives righteousness and justice to all who are treated unfairly. God is a better defender. He's a better judge. He's a better protector than you can be. And so your responsibility now, even in this moment, going back to Matthew 18, verse 21, Peter has a conversation with Jesus and he said, hey, if somebody sins against me, if they offend me, like how often do I have to forgive them? Like seven times? Like, is that, is that enough? And Jesus said, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, no matter how many times somebody offends you and hurts you, the expectation from Jesus is that we forgive time and time and time again. And so your action step for today in Matthew 18, a few verses earlier in verse 15, says this, if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. And if the other person listens and confesses it, you've won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat the person as a pagan or a corrupt tax collector. In other words, treat them as an unbeliever, cast them out. So the action step for you is to forgive. And for some of you, if that person is still alive or you have that conflict with, you need to confront them. And you need to ask the Lord to give you a boldness. Ask the Lord to help you to be honest with some people in your life where you have not been fully honest. And you can be honest and honoring at the same time, but you've got to forgive, you've got to confront, and you've got to release. And if there's somebody in your life that maybe has passed on and you've got a hurt and a pain from there that you've never dealt with, forgiveness in that sense can be one way. You can forgive them in your heart and be at peace with God even if you can't tell it to their face. And for the peace takers, the conflict aggressors, I know some of you maybe grew up on the other side and there's some things that happened in your life and you did the same sort of thing, but it just looked a little bit different. You started pushing people away or maybe you developed a tough exterior because you didn't want to be heard. And then you would say things like this, you would do something, hurt somebody and you would say, well, they're just being too sensitive. I'm a, I'm a straight shooter. I'm going to tell it how it is. And, and you live your life that way. And that becomes your MO. And then what happens, you get to a place where apathy sets in. And you never have empathy and understanding towards how somebody could be hurt by that. And you isolate that way. In Matthew 5, 23 and 24, this is what your takeaway is for today. It says, so if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, Leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer the sacrifice to God. And so can I just encourage you? I'm so glad you're here, but God does not need your church attendance, your songs, your giving, your offering, anything else at the expense of being right with other people. What he wants more than anything, the offering and the song of praise that will move his heart is for you to walk in humility and allow your heart to be broken for people that you've hurt and offended and to go to them and say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? I repent to that. God, I confess it to you and I need your forgiveness. And if we do that, no matter what side you are on, we will become peacemakers. And everywhere we go, we'll see conflict as an opportunity to bring the peace of heaven into that. And we'll do what Romans 12, 18 says, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Then again, similarly in Hebrews 12, 14, work it, living in peace with everyone. It's going to take work. And so as we begin to pray, I pray your heart just open. Now, would you just close your eyes and bow your heads across this room? Maybe you're here today and you have consistently avoided conflict for one reason or another does not matter. 
But maybe for some of you, you just never knew. Maybe you never had the boldness or the courage to do that. Maybe for some of you, you've been hurt or offended. And what happens in that moment is that you have held on to a grudge for some of you for decades. For others of you, maybe it's been recent conversations and you think that you're getting justice, but the reality is you're the one who is imprisoned. And so there is no other option. God does not make a distinguishment between personalities, between wants and likes and all these other things. His command to us today is that if you have an offense towards somebody, you need to be honest and you need to do it in a loving way. And likewise, if you've offended somebody, you can't just move on and say, well, that's their problem. So if you're here today and there is unresolved conflict in your life, I want you to be honest. Nobody looking around, but I want you to raise your hand as a sign of honesty. Would you just lift your hand all across this room that you've got some unresolved conflict that you need to have resolved today, even for some of you. Some of you need to make a call, send a text message, have a conversation, something unresolved. You can put your hands down. I know there may be in a crowd this size, there may be some people here that your greatest conflict isn't with another person. Maybe it's with God because you've never truly surrendered your life to the Lord. And so maybe if, if that's you here today and you say, I need Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I need to surrender my life. I want that conflict to be resolved for all of eternity. The Bible says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you're saved according to, to Romans 10, 9 and 10. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that you're saved by grace through faith and not of your works. And so if that's you today and you need to make that declaration, would you just raise your hand all across this room? When anybody says that they need to give their life to the Lord. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. Listen, if that's you, just in your heart, just pray, Lord, I need you. I confess my sin to you. And I confess you to be my Savior. Would you forgive me? Would you make me right? Would you heal me? And would you save me? I believe that you're the Son of God, that you died for me, and that you were raised to life. And God, I want to spend eternity living for you. Will you help me to do that in Jesus' name? And Lord, for every other person here, God, that said that they need help, Lord, the honest confession, whether they raise their hand or not, Lord, I pray for supernatural boldness. I pray for such an integrity that says, I cannot go another day without making this right. Lord, would you do that? Would you allow that to be bathed in humility? And God, would you allow us to never take another step, take another breath without being right with other people relationally and certainly right with you. So Lord, let us come out of hiding, no fear, no shame, no guilt, but God, just an honesty to pursue you, Lord. Would you remove doubt? Would you expose deception? Will you, will you give clarity where we are distracted, Lord? And will you bring unity where we are divided? We ask this in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Amen. Hey, I want to invite you to stand with us right now. We're going to sing uh, and worship the Lord through song and just declare a song that says, God is more than able. So whatever that circumstances is, nothing's impossible for him. Let your faith rise in this room. Come on, let's give him praise. <laughs>